So this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we are t- it is titled, Living Stones, Building a Spiritual House in an Unspiritual Land. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not have one, uh, there should be one located in one of the seat backs in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Um, If you could and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on the gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Welcome to Providence Community Church again. Thanks for the whoops. Uh, If you guys don't know me, my name is Eric. Uh, Good to be with you this morning. Uh, as Ty said, we are in a series in First Peter uh, entitled An, A Spiritual House in an Unspiritual Land. And so we've been talking about this theme, we're going to get into more of it today, about how God's people have been set up as a spiritual house in a world that is not very spiritual, uh, and how that is an important role in which we play as the church of God, and we will discuss that here coming up. So our topic today is... Uh, on marriage, and maybe in more particular, uh, the roles of men and women. And I think this is going to be an important topic for us to cover, uh, just in light of our world and uh, our culture, and um, I'm glad to get into it with you. What I would like to do before we get started is I would like to just pray and just ask God to help us as we get into the Word, and then we'll uh, we'll get it going. So uh, if you guys could join me in prayer. Father, we love you very much, and we thank you this morning for your word. God, your word, as we know, is powerful. It's amazing. It changes our lives because, God, you are powerful and you are amazing. And so, God, our prayer is is help us, Lord. Help us. We need your help. We are a distracted people. We're distracted by many different things, and, and it's our Uh, natural response sometimes to to not want your word. And so I just pray, help us, Lord. Help us to see, help your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And we pray against the enemy right now who would love nothing more than to steal the seed of the word. God, may that not be so. May you protect us and open our eyes and change us. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So a few things uh, as we jump into it that I want to cover with the text. Uh, One is that our culture uh, has clearly, and this is um, historically nothing new. Uh, This has happened all throughout history, but our culture has taken aim 
at marriage has taken aim at the roles of men and women. And so it's important that we discuss these things from a biblical perspective. Uh, that is important. And so you can see this in a few different ways. Uh, if you've been to any like, uh, or if you've been into any like early nine, uh, late 90s, early 2000s sitcoms, you've seen this theme. It's very prevalent, right? If you watch King of Queens or anything like that, what happens is you usually got the husband who's just kind of stupid sometimes, right? He's kind of lazy, uh, a little bit stupid, gets things wrong pretty much every time. Uh, and then his, the wife comes in and rescues him. And while that may be reality and very true, uh, to some extent has been a clear attack on the role of male leadership in the home. Uh, and you can see this in other ways with uh, just some of the movements going on in our culture right now. Uh, the biblical definition of manhood and womanhood is under attack. So it's important we discuss it. Another thing I like to mention is that uh, I understand if you are widowed, divorced, single, maybe you feel like you've been single for far too long, that uh, sermons like this could be pretty uncomfortable, uh, maybe not super helpful to you sometimes, or maybe you kind of feel like you just want to check out. And I would just encourage you that this is in God's word for a reason. And I think the principles we discuss today are vitally important to the gospel of Jesus Christ and every single person's life. And so I pray as we discuss these things that you feel encouraged and feel like you can glean something and not um, mad about what's going on. Um, and then one last thing, as I want to define as we jump into this, we've kind of had a definition of, uh, as we talked about men's and women's roles, and it's this. Uh, and it's simply that we believe wholeheartedly that men and women are equal in dignity, value, and essence, but they are distinct in roles. I think this is an important distinction and framework for us to work in the context of. Uh, the Bible is very clear that men and women are equal in every way, except when it comes to God's design, innate design, in the roles that men and women play in marriage. Uh, and so he's designed us uniquely different for his glory that reveal different aspects of God, the Trinity, and his unique differences and oneness at the same time. And this is something that is awesome. It glorifies God. It's a good thing. And I'm sure I don't have to convince you of that, but I think it's important as we jump into this text and get started. So I would like to start today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, because I think they set the stage for what we're going to be discussing this morning. So if you look at verse 11 and 12 of me, here's what it says. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter has created a framework, which he will continue to talk about. We did last week, uh, even the week prior, into this week, and on a few more chapters, where he has discussed in chapters 1 and 2 this amazing promise of the gospel that is ours, that will never fade away and we have in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain the promise of who the church is and how God has created us a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, right? And then he makes his transition and says, Beloved, therefore, I, I, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You are a sojourner. You are an exile. This is not your home, right? We may temporarily live in the United States of America, but our home is in heaven. It's in God's kingdom. And so he creates this framework that we're looking forward to this. And in light of that, in light of us being sojourners, we are to conduct ourselves 
with a certain attitude and behavior that reflects that kingdom and therefore causes the people of the world who are by nature unspiritual to see what's going on in our lives and say that's something different. And it would cause them to be drawn into this life with Christ that leads to glorifying him on the day of visitation when Christ returns. And so the whole framework here is mission. Our life is supposed to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have hoped in and believed in. Our our life is a witness. And this includes our marriage. So this is why he says, likewise, he's going to be talking about wives and husbands. And so Peter is connecting uh, the marriage of the believer with the proclamation and witnessing of the gospel. This is an amazing thing, and it's kind of framework I want to work in. So i got three kind of overarching points. Um, and the first one is that marriage is purposeful, not arbitrary. And I just simply want to say that marriage uh, does not simply exist for our happiness. You've probably heard that in, in many sermons before. Um, your spouse, if you are married, does not solely exist for your pleasure and comfort, but rather... Your spouse and yourself and your marriage exist mainly and most passionately for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is vitally important to our souls. This is important. This puts it in perspective when you and your marriage are having fights about the the silliest things, right? Um, This puts it in perspective that uh, there's a more important goal to our marriage than simply getting everything we want out of this life. The, the, the more important goal is Jesus Christ. As Paul describes marriage, it's a, it's a representation, a proclamation of the mystery of Christ and his church, God and his people. See, God has always been doing this with his people. He's always wanted a people by whom and through whom he can reveal his glory. And he is going to do that with our marriages. And this is an amazing thing. Your marriage plays a vital role in the proclamation of the gospel. And we'll get into that and why that is in the text. Now, we're going to talk about uh, my second point here, which is marriage is active, not passive. And there's really two things Peter discusses here. He focuses on the woman and the, the women get six verses and the man gets one. That's how it works. Okay. And so. I think there probably was some, you know, God said, just going to give the man one at a time, okay? So you do this one thing right, your life's going to be awesome. And there I go belittling the man again, right? Um, but it, it's, it's a lot in here for, for women. And uh, I did a really poor job last gathering at um, keeping the time appropriate. So we're going to make sure we, we trim things down here. And uh, the last service was the guinea pig, so you guys are in good shape. You should hopefully get a better product here. Um, So marriage is active, not passive. There are things in our marriage, in our relationship as husband and wife that we can do that are vitally important to this outcome of proclaiming the gospel, witnessing to the world that God is good and that he saves. And so I want to walk through, I got kind of four major things for the woman, three for the guy, and then we'll talk at the end about what this looks like. So, um, Let's hop into it. So let's read verses 1 and 2 together, chapter 3. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, This is an amazing, amazing statement. Peter says that if you have a 
woman who is a believer in Jesus Christ, and she is married to a man who does not believe in Jesus Christ, that by the power of her respectful and pure conduct, he can be won over to believe in Jesus Christ. There is power in what we do. This is amazing. And so the first kind of thing that Peter gives is wives should be subject to their own husbands. Now, for some of us, that may sound very outdated and antiquated. Like, hey, that may have made sense, you know, in the uh, 1700s, but not now. And so I want to discuss what does it mean when he calls for wives to be subject, and he'll use later on in the text the word submission. And I know that those could be some trigger words, but I want to define them, and hopefully it's helpful. Um, simply put, what I believe uh, subjection and submission is, is this. It's a confident yet humble yielding to the husband's leadership as both of them seek to glorify God and display his gospel to a dying world. Uh, you're going to hear me repeat this several times probably, but I want to make it very clear that roles in marriage are by no means a competency issue. In, in the Bible, it, it does not discuss that, you know, there's certain aspects of leadership that men just should be better at and women should just kind of step out of the way because they're not going to do it right. It doesn't talk about it in that way. It talks about indistinct roles. And so uh, this submission that happens from the wife uh, is a humble and confident yielding to the man's leadership. And we'll discuss more what that means when we get to the man. But uh, it might be helpful to mention a few things that submission is not. I think that would be helpful to kind of clarify things. Here's a few things submission is not. One, it's not that there's no disagreement uh, even among important things within the marriage. Uh, The greatest example is right here where you have a a believing wife with a non-believing husband. They probably fundamentally disagree on every single thing about life because the the Christian worldview is significantly different, right? And so what they feel about God, what they feel about their conduct, what they feel about how they should behave is probably fundamentally different. And I would say, even in a Christian marriage, that um, it's okay to have disagreements. I don't think submission is just blind obedience because that's what the Lord said to do. Uh, It's not a competency issue as we described. It's not fear-based or coercive, and we're going to talk about how the woman of God is absolutely fearless, as this text is going to describe her as. Um, and it's, it's not many of these things. And I, I could go on with the list, but for the sake of time, I'm going to end it there. But um, So it's this amazing thing, this honoring thing that a woman does, submitting to the husband, that is a confident one, but a humble one. And we'll discuss more what that means as we go. So the second thing is that he says this her conduct should be respectful and pure. And this word respectful means fear. It means in fear is is what it would translate to from the original language. And so um, I take this to mean that the woman's conduct has a specific fear and purity towards God as she lives her life. That's how I would describe that. And there's some other scholars that would would go different ways than others. But in my non-scholarly opinion, that's what I would say. I think that there's this reverence and this um, fear, as the Bible describes, and this purity of wanting to obey Jesus Christ and live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And Peter here is calling wives to that standard. Make no mistake, men are called to that standard as well. But in particular right now, Peter is focusing on the wife, saying that there is this pure and 
uh, respectful or reverent conduct that a woman can have that is absolutely powerful in winning people over to the gospel. It is amazing when it's seen. It is otherworldly when it is seen. And then he goes on to talk more about what this may look like. Um, And so let's kind of keep reading through because I think this kind of gets into some important things here. Um, So starting in verse 2, we'll kind of read down into 3, 4. It says this, so when they see respectful and pure conduct, there'll be, there'll be one over is the context there. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's so much in this text and I do think it applies to men as well. I think we think we care a lot about what we look like too. Um, but Peter's got some awesome insight. Here's a few things. Peter does not say that women should altogether avoid the things that were mentioned. If that were the case, he mentioned clothes. So that would be a pretty bad thing to project, right? Um, but rather, Peter's focus is on the amount of energy, time, and identity that we put into the way that we look. And specifically for women, he's saying, don't believe the lie that your looks are that important. I'm not saying it's bad to take care of yourself and wear makeup and all those things. That could be taken to the nth degree in some more fundamental churches. But I would say, don't believe the lie that your looks are so important. Look, the Bible is clear that your beauty is going to fade. There will come a day where you will be ugly. And you will embrace it. And you will say, Amen. Okay, it's going to come a time. So rather than focusing on the beauty that perishes, Peter says, there's a beauty that's way more beautiful and precious in God's sight that never perishes. And we'll describe what that looks like. But the point is that godliness never perishes. Our godliness gets better and better and better until one day Christ perfects us and we are beautiful in a way that we could never, ever, ever imagine. And Peter says, that's where your pursuit should be. And so what is this imperishable beauty? He names, it's a gentle and quiet spirit. And I'm gonna talk about what that means in a second as we get down into being fearless because I think this high hand in hand, but a gentle and quiet spirit, which is not this... uh, shut up wife, you're not allowed to talk kind of mentality, but rather it's this, I would say, fearlessness and calmness and serenity in the midst of danger and uh, fearful and frightening situations and life. And we'll get to that point here in a second. So the woman who hopes in God and trusts in the rock solid foundation of who he is and what he does will be serene and calm in the midst of the chaos. So let's look at verse 5. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Man, there's a lot in here. Um, So there should be in every woman, every wife, this fearlessness I love this description. It's a fearlessness that hopes in God, just like the women of old used to do. And he mentions Sarah. And I love that he mentions Sarah because um, 
Sarah and Abraham have a unique story, right? That Abraham's like the patriarch of the Israel people, and really we kind of trace our lineage of religion back to Abraham and everything that was started there with God and what he did. And it's this amazing story. But what we see over and over again is Abraham fails significantly to lead his wife well, to protect her well. He's an idiot in many circumstances. In multiple times, what happens is uh, she's so good looking and he's so impressed with how his wife looks that he's uh, traveling and sojourning into different towns and the rulers of those cities and, and regions um, he's like, man, I know what's going to happen. We're going to roll into this town. They're going to know that we're married. They're going to see how beautiful you are, and they're going to kill me so they can have you. This is going to happen. So he has a little meeting with her and says, um, please tell them that we're brother and sister so they don't kill me and they don't get jealous of me. And she goes along with it, and multiple times uh, these rulers will, will take Sarah in, and they have intentions with her. That shouldn't happen because she's married, but they don't know that she's married because Abraham's a liar. And what happens, by God's grace, he gives like these rulers visions in random circumstances. They're, they're like, oh, she's a married woman. Oh, God, get away from her, right? And, uh, you know, God saves her from those vulnerable circumstances of being taken advantage of. But Abraham, on the other hand, was just, no matter what, at the cost of saving his own life, right, he, he does some pretty bad things. And still, it says that Sarah called him Lord and respected him and submitted under him. Now, before you think you could tell your wife to call you Lord, this was a different narrative, okay, uh, in, in that time period. The, the, the word for Lord was a very respectful term that was used for the man of the house. Uh, it, was an, it was an honorable acknowledgement. This guy's leading me. We trust him. We're following his lead, okay? That's, that's, that's what it was. So um, we would not use that term now. But the point is, is he gives this example uh, that the women of old, uh, despite the husband maybe being a total loser in some capacity, right, which all of us could probably relate to as men, that we're a loser in some capacity, that yet uh, Sarah trusted in her God enough to submit to her husband Abraham to respect him and honor him and to be fearless in the midst of any situation. And so God is calling women to be fearless. And this is important because um, I think sometimes we just kind of get messed up a little bit when we hear like the gentle and quiet spirit. And we kind of think, oh, that means you have to be docile and your personality has to be very timid and, uh, you know, all those things. But I, I think that uh, uh, you could have the most aggressive personality of a woman, most ferocious woman that's just getting things done and is just kind of in your face. And she could still be a godly, submissive woman. Woman. And I think that's important to acknowledge. It's not about personality here. This is not about uh, literally how much you could not talk. This is about a humble, confident trust in the Lord that says, I can submit and I can be fearless in all situations. So I would sum up like this. Here's what I would say. And I want to tell a story that might do a little bit better. So um, Peter paints the picture of a godly woman as someone uh, who is confident yet humble, gentle yet fearless, uh, whose life can win souls by shining the light of Jesus to a lost and dying world. That is a godly woman. And I would just ask the question, who wouldn't want that? That's awesome, right? It's awesome. Who wouldn't want to be that fearless, confident, humble, gentle woman? God's design and roles is not demeaning. It is life-giving. And it's important. And so I want to tell you a quick story that I think sums this up. And I got this from uh, 
uh, I've read this story before, but there was a uh, Ask Pastor John podcast recently about, uh, you know, struggling with how you look. And he told the story of a missionary woman named Evelyn Brand. And she's an important person to read about, definitely read about her. She did a lot of great things, but she uh, grew up in an affluent home, had uh, lots of amazing dresses and parties and everything, and she was converted to Christ, and she ended up uh, wanting to marry a missionary. And so it took a while, but she convinced her dad, like, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I want to do, let me marry this man. And so they get married, and shortly after they move uh, to the mountains of India, which was a very rough life for them in that time. They lived in a little portable hut that they could carry around, so basically a tent, uh, and they were they had this ambitious goal to reach five of these villages that were huge, and uh, they wanted to educate them and all these things. Uh, so they get there, and shortly after, at age 44, her husband dies in India. And so she's left widowed, and she travels back to England, and she... Um, you know, spends a year grieving, and then she has to then, she decides, I want to go back to India. I want to fulfill the commitment that I made to the people of India. And so she does that, and she has this argument with her denomination. They don't want her to go because it's dangerous and she'd be by herself, but she eventually convinces them to, to let her go for one year. Now, she had no real intention of only staying for a year, but she convinced them to get her there and send her there, and then she uh, kind of eventually obviously had to break ways with them. But she spent uh, the rest of her life uh, educating the children, building schools, uh, teaching them how to dress their wounds, how to stay healthy, uh, teaching them how to farm, which her, her husband was really good at. And there was a certain worm that was killing a lot of the crops, so how to get rid of that worm and help them farm. She taught them the gospel. She taught them what it means to follow Jesus. She taught them the Bible. And uh, eventually, at age 67, she had broken her hip and was really unable to move. They had to carry her and different things like that. And her work was kind of hindered for a little bit. And so her son, whose name is Paul Brand, he came to visit her, and uh, he basically tried to convince her. It's like, Mom, you're 67. You have a broken hip. Previously, she had broken an arm. She had multiple fractured ribs that never healed properly. And he was a surgeon, so he kind of knew what was going on. Uh, she was constantly sick with malaria and different diseases from the Indian mountains. Uh, and she said, I can't do that. She said, you know the mountains. If I leave, who's going to come? She said, I'll tell you what, if someone comes to replace me, I'll retire. But until then, I'm going to be here. And with a broken hip and confidence, she said that at 67. And Evelyn Brand lived to be 95 and died in those mountains, never returning back to England. It's an awesome story. And what I want to point out is what her son said about her. This is what he said. He said, with wrinkles as deep and extensive as any I have ever seen on a human face, she was a beautiful woman. I love that. I mean, that is an amazing legacy from this girl. She was a beautiful woman and had the deepest wrinkles. So before you start to put things on your face to get rid of those wrinkles, remember it's a beautiful honor if you spend your life. But what was beautiful about Evelyn Brand? What was beautiful? Was it external? Obviously not. It was her life, her giving away of her life for the sake of the glory of God and the good of people. This is a beautiful thing, I promise you. Real beauty is that. It's taking the call seriously when Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. It's embracing the 
life slogan of Paul, which said, I don't count my life of any value or precious to myself, that I might finish my course and complete the work that God has given me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is true beauty. Or as the book of Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those on the mountain who bring the good news. And so this is true beauty. This is true womanhood. And this is what God has called you to do. Now, uh, let's focus on the husbands. Like I said, we get one verse, but it's an important verse, and there's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, and so here's what it says in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I've got about three major things I want to point out about the husband, and then we'll draw some conclusions here. So the first thing is, uh, Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way. And so we've got to ask, what does that mean? Well, to give a probably more biblical, clear uh, definition of what that actually means in the original language, it would say something like this, uh, live with your wife according to knowledge. And some of the older translations will say that. So how do you live with your wife according to knowledge knowledge of what those are very good questions and i'm glad you asked them i got four knowledges i want to talk about four things that as men we should know about okay to live with our wives according to knowledge the first thing is you should know her you got to know your wife this is important your wife is a person not a body you have to know her So do you know your wife? Do you take time to know her? Do you pursue her? Do you study her? Do you ask her important questions? Do you know how she feels, why she's feeling it? You have the responsibility to know your wife. There are so many marriages that lack a genuine communication when it comes to this, and it usually ends in a cold marriage, headaches, or divorce, right? We're not having conversations. This is important. Are there things in your life that are distracting you from getting to know your wife? Get rid of them. They are not nearly as important as getting to know your wife. The husband that stops wanting and pursuing to get to know his wife will start to want and pursue to get to know someone else. You got to know your wife and love her that way. Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you communicate? Do you talk? I think kind of facetiously, but maybe seriously, that the greatest threat to our marriages today would probably be TikTok or Netflix, all right? Um, We're distracted all the time. We we would rather, before going to bed, we'd rather crawl into bed and just get that last episode, and rather than talk, it's important we get to know each other and that we pray that God would give us discernment to know our wives so that we might know how to lead them. It's an important responsibility. Secondly, you have to know yourself, This is also important. You have to know your sinful patterns and tendencies that continually negatively affect your marriage. You have to know your tendency to be lazy or passive. You have to know your tendency to check out when things get hard or to not pray for your family and your wife. You have to know these things so you can fight these things. And it's important that you're honest about yourself and you realize, I'm not that great. I'm not an awesome man. I mean, that was one of the most important things for me as I reflect on my marriage, that when I was getting married, I just genuinely thought I was a pretty awesome person, and I thought I was going to be a good good husband. <laughs> and then you get married, and you realize, wow, I'm awful at so many things I thought I would be good at. It's so much harder. Uh, the third thing you have to know about is the world around you. So what's going on in the culture? What's going on in the world around you? 
what ways is the enemy kind of placating towards our sinful desires? What things we're being attacked by? What are important things to watch for? It's important, right? Like you would not respect a soldier who had no idea what was going on with the enemy. It would just be ridiculous, right? I mean, you can't just go into battle. You don't know what's happening. And so it's important as a man that you, you get to know those things, that you pay attention. And then lastly, and I would say by far most importantly, is you have to have knowledge of the word of God. If you don't have knowledge of the word of God, every other knowledge is going to break down into something that's not useful. In order to know your wife, in order to know yourself, in order to know what's going on in the world around you, you have to know your Bible. You have to love it. You have to fight for it. This is so important. This is how we truly get to know our wives, ourselves, and the world. If you neglect this, you will always find yourself fumbling and flopping trying to lead your home. And so I don't care how you do it. I mean, there's so many ways. Maybe you're someone who just, I can just get one verse in before work. That's about it. And I just reflect on that. If I can apply that, praise God. You're in the word. That's awesome. That's a win. You may read the you know, Bible in 90 days and just kind of keep going through it. You may be that awesome, okay? I, I don't know. But however you do it, you have to know the word. You got to love it. You got to memorize it. You got to fight with it because it's what God has given us that we might live with our wives in an understanding way. And it's awesome. Take Take responsibility in this and joy in this because it's how you're equipped for your leadership. It's how you grow and become a better man. And I want to remind you that a godly woman is not impressed with your achievement of greatness in this life. A godly woman is not impressed with how well you can perfect your hobbies. A godly woman is not impressed with how fast you can watch a whole season of a show in one night. A godly woman is impressed with your single-mindedness towards the Lord. That's impressive. That's amazing. That is handsome um, to do that. And so we must have a single-minded discipline to pursue God and a single-minded discipline to pursue our wives. I'm telling you, it's the greatest joy. You know this, but we neglect this for whatever reason. And so live with your wives according to knowledge. The second thing Peter states in verse 7 is that we should give honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Um, And so I simply want to define weaker vessel. I think this is a biological term. I think it's just saying by nature, most of the time, uh, men tend to be stronger. That's kind of how we're built. You got gaunt guys like me who maybe are the exception, all right? Uh, But at the end of the day, it's mostly how it works, right? I, I think... Peter's just simply saying there's this innate thing within us uh, that we should protect and honor the women. So this is where like opening the door for the woman came from, right? It has nothing to do with that a woman can't open a door. You get the few exceptions when you go into a building and you go to pull it and you think it was going to be a lot lighter than it was. And it's kind of embarrassing, right? But outside of that, you know, a, a woman can open a door just fine. It's about honoring. It's giving, uh, I would define honor as like giving preference to the woman and that, that's why like Paul can say in Romans like yeah, in a marriage you guys should outdo one another in showing honor it should be this healthy uh, competition that happens between the husband and the wife but mainly for the husband the responsibility to honor and give preference to your wife is very important look it's simple put your needs your wants last it's a simple equation it is one of the hardest things to do though it's amazing I mean it's like a toddler level like lesson we have to learn 
but it's like impossible even as adults, right? Uh, it's like sharing toys. I, I mean, my kids, it's just so funny sometimes. Like uh, yesterday, they were fighting over this game, and there was like only one person that could do it. And then my youngest son uh, just looked at me and was so mad. I said, dude, just, just, just let him do it. I said, isn't this awesome that you get to uh, put someone else's once before your own? You get to be a giver and not a taker. That's cool, isn't it? And he just looked at me. It's like, no, it's not. I mean, it was, it was such a simple equation to him. Just, no, it's not cool. It's not fun. It's not exciting. It's not joyful. Uh, but it's a good reminder, right? No, it's not fun, but it's good for us. And men, I think in particular, it's good for us. This is a Christian thing. Everyone does this. But I think in particular, it is a good thing for you to have to give preference and honor to your wife and not yourself. And it's a hard battle, but we got to do it. Because, man, does that look like Jesus. And that's what we're called to do is to look like him. And so if I could, uh, oh, yeah. And then the third thing and probably um, the most important thing here is that uh, the warning that it gives you in verse 7. He says that you should do this so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, you can interpret this in two ways. It could either be. Uh, your individual prayers as a man are going to be hindered. But I think probably the, the, the easiest and clearest interpretation would be the, the prayer life of you and your wife is going to be dramatically hindered if you fail to do this. If you fail to show honor and give respect and protect your spouse, then it's going to hinder things. And, and I think the greatest litmus test for your marriage is you should take a moment every single day with your spouse and pray together. It is humbling. If you guys just got in an argument, this is going to be an awkward prayer session. The last thing you want to do is hold hands and go to Jesus for all the goodness that he gives, right? That's not what's going to happen. It's a weird thing to pray when you're mad at somebody. Like, you know what, this is weird. Let's, uh, let's pray together. We don't want to talk, but we'll talk to God. You know, it's kind of like that. Um, it's a great litmus test, uh, a barometer, if you will, for your marriage. And this is a serious warning. Mar- uh, not marriage, but uh, prayer is your life. It's your life. If you can't talk to God, you can't live, right? You want to know how you're doing spiritually? Do you pray? Do you come to God? Do you want him? Do you want to know him? And and, and Peter gives the warning that if if you fail to walk in this, if you fail to give preference to your wife, that your prayers will be hindered. You will not be a unified, cohesive family. Um, and, And I just want to point out, like verses like this just make it so clear that the, the enemy hates your marriage with everything he has because your marriage represents something he hates even more, which is God, right? And it glorifies God and it proclaims the gospel and he hates that. He hates your marriage. Gosh, there's so many, and it's easy for, you know, if you're on the outside of someone else's marriage, it's like, gosh, why are you guys fighting so much, right? Like, why, just get over it, all right? It's not that big of a deal. But when it's you and you're in your marriage and you feel offended and you feel uh, mistreated and you feel like it's cold, That's a different scenario. That's hard. And I would say, just remember what's going on here. Texts like this show that there's something deeper at work than what you see on the surface. There's something deeper at work than you guys disagreeing on which paint you're going to choose for the living room accent wall. Like there's there's something deeper going on there always, right? And it's, we got to fight for this. It is a fight. It is a hard fight. So don't neglect the responsibility. So if I could sum up for the men, I would say take responsibility. Like the framework is this. It's not that, um, well, I'll get in a second. I'll just say this. Take intentional responsibility 
for leading your wife and honoring her as the weaker vessel. This is important. It's so important. Just take that responsibility. It's like this. Probably the most helpful way I've ever heard male leadership defined is this. Uh, it, it is that, um, actually I may have written it down somewhere. I don't know. Uh, that's fine. I'll just go with it. But basically, uh, male leadership is a bent towards uh, initiative that the wife thrives under. It's a bent towards initiative that the wife thrives under. So here's the deal. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, uh, no way I could do that. You know, my wife's like a CEO and leads like tons of people and I'm, you know, awful in every single way you can imagine with leadership or anything like that, right? Or whatever it may be, all these kind of arguments that come about. Listen, the point is that you take initiative. The wife should not have to constantly say, hey, we should do this. Hey, why don't we do this? Hey, let's do this. There should be like a spiritual initiative by the man that just says, I'm going to take action here. I may not be good at it. She may be better at it. But the point is that I'm going to take initiative. That's what leadership is. It's taking initiative to make sure that these things aren't falling through the cracks and that your home is one of love and where your wife is cherished and where God is honored and and glorified. And so that's important. My my last point as we we close here, we're about to be out of time, is that... um, Marriage is eternal, not temporary. Now, before you say, wait a second, Jesus said it was, it was uh, going to end soon. It's kind of momentary just in this life. Just hear me out. Uh, obviously, the institution of earthly marriage is very temporary, okay? It is momentary. That's why when you take your vows, you say, until death do us part. That means when one of you croaks, uh, then the marriage is it's over, right? And in, in the institution of this life, it's over. That's why it's sad, I mean, it's many reasons why it's sad to lose a spouse, but it's, it, it is over in, in a sense. But um, I think, one, the intimacy and relationship and friendship that you build in this life definitely carries on into eternity. And I think more importantly, the focus has to be on the real marriage, which is Jesus Christ in his church, right? One day, the Bible says that we're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and God's bride, which is the saints is going to have this huge feast celebrating this eternal marriage with Jesus Christ. That's the goal, right? That's the real marriage. And so, look at what Peter says right here in verse 7. And you could gloss over it and miss it, but he says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. This is a direct reference to Peter's uh, chapter 1, starting verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power. So Peter talks about this inheritance that we all have that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for us. And that is that is the, the real marriage with Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement is that whether you have a happy marriage right now, a happy long marriage, whether you've been widowed, whether you're divorced and have never had a happy marriage, whether you're 13 and have no idea if you're going to get married, and whether you're single and have been single for a long time and just don't know if you're going to find marriage, my encouragement all across the board is our hope is in the real marriage. It's in the real marriage. Not that your marriage isn't real. Maybe a better term would be the, the better and lasting marriage. 
It's coming. And that's where our hope is. And that doesn't belittle the grief that we feel on this side of eternity. But I sure hope it does bolster your confidence and your trust in Christ and your love for Him and your hope in Him. The ultimate marriage is coming with Jesus in the church. And, and Peter assuredly wants us to focus there and wants that to give life to our marriage. And so I hope that encourages you in marriage. I hope that you don't take the roles of men and women as something belittling. It's not. It's freeing. God has designed us in very specific ways. And it has um, everything to do with His glory, His church, His mission. And thanks be to God that if we can get this a little bit right, which we can, it's very messy, but even in our messy marriage as we walk in obedience to these things, God is shining the light of the gospel to the world. And it goes out and it's amazing. The best missional thing you could do, even moving over to India to the mountains, is love each other well in your marriage. This is missional for your kids. It's missional if it's only reciprocated one way in the marriage, just like the example that Peter gives of a non-believing spouse, right? It's still amazing. There's still honor in that. It's still God-glorifying and totally pure, and it's what we need. And so I think the perfect way uh, for us to respond is to take communion together today. We do this every Sunday, but I think what a cool celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb because when we take communion, every time we take communion, we're proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes. We're proclaiming the gospel of Christ in communion. That's why Jesus held up the bread and said, this is my body broken for you in the cup. And said, uh, this is my, the covenant in my blood that's going to be poured out for you. And I'm giving some creative license and taking other scriptures, but that you might be white as snow, right? So Jesus was promising. There's a marriage coming. Jesus is saying, I have espoused you to me for eternity. And in the act of communion that we have and we get to partake in as the church together, it's believing and enjoying that promise that he has espoused us to himself forever. So as you take communion this morning, I I just encourage you, um, take time to consider Christ. Consider his goodness and his joy that he offers us. And, and do it with reverence. I mean, there's warnings in the Bible not to just take it flippantly, right? We're supposed to think of Christ. This is important. And, and, I, and I do want to remind us that uh, we wholeheartedly believe that communion is for the believer. And so if you don't believe in Christ today, this is going to be nothing more than a weird little pouch at the seat pocket in front of you. It's not going to be enjoyable for you. It's not going to make sense. Rather, I would ask that you consider Christ Consider the truth of the gospel. Consider your life. Consider what Jesus freely offers you today by his grace alone and not by your merit or works. And so we have communion cups. Uh, If you're in the front row here, it's going to be under your seat. And then if you're in any other row, it should be in the seat kind of pocket there or rack in front of you. Uh, And so I'd just like to pray with us. You guys can remain seated. Let's pray together and then we'll take uh, communion together. And you're welcome to stay in your seats, sing, take communion. Um, So let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you um, for your word again. God, I want to thank you for marriage. I want to thank you that, um, that by your grace and mercy that we find in the gospel, we then have power to live our lives 
in a way that honors our spouse and more importantly, honors you in the gospel. God, we want our lives to be missional, to be a witness and proclamation to the precious gospel that we have believed and hope in for the rest of eternity. And so God, help us to witness there. I pray for the husbands and wives in this room that have just been at such odds in tension with one another or have been lazy and neglectful of what you've called them to do. Would you help us, God, to repent and to take up the word of God and the power that you infuse us with to live a godly life in your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us there that we might be a witness. God, I pray for those who have experienced loss, whether through being widowed or divorce or just a cold marriage that's on the brink of end. God, would you encourage them in the real marriage? Would you help them to take up their cross, to follow you, to be humble, to submit to you, Lord, and to live their life in such a way that pours out love, even if they're not loved back. And God, would you help those who have struggled so hard with singleness and the idea of missing out on any of the things in marriage that this life offers. And God, my simple prayer is, would you help them, God, to find their all in you? Would you help them to be totally content? Because with or without marriage, our life is a witness. The way that we live in you, Lord Jesus, is a witness to the world. And it is a reminder that the real marriage is coming very soon. And no one who is in Jesus Christ will miss out on that marriage. No one, Lord. You invite all in to be a part of your bride. And praise be to you. So God, help us be a witness. Help us to follow you. Help us to give our lives away that you might be glorified and you might be honored. And let us bring us the deepest joy, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As the Spirit leads, you can take it.